crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brett Nuktagal. I'm here with archaeologist Christopher Eames. He's written an article this past week of a recent discovery that's taken place on the outskirts of Jerusalem in the Arnona neighborhood, just next to or just south, I would say, of the uh, the former United States consulate, now embassy. And the IAA has been conducting excavations there this past year, and they came forth with a press release this week. And so we're going to be talking about that in a second. I will also mention that in the second half of today's show, we're going to be talking about a recent study that was produced by Tel Aviv University that goes into brain connectivity and different comparative studies between mammal, all mammals, humans, and other animals, and showing that what goes on in your brain, at least in terms of how everything is connected, is the same as how things are connected with animals. Very interesting study. We'll get to that in the second half. But first, welcome, Chris. Hello, Brent. Can you please just uh, start off? We know we, you wrote an article about this on on Watch Jerusalem, and so people can watch, look for that. And I'll leave it in the show notes, a link to that article of today's program to get some more details of this discovery. But here we are, people excavating uh, about three kilometers from the old city of Jerusalem, city that we've been uh, excavating for a number of years, where we've found lots from King Hezekiah's time, and I really find it interesting that they they found as you'll as you'll cover just a really large building so close to Jerusalem, indicating that this whole area around Jerusalem, not just inside the city walls, was was inhabited during this time from two thousand seven hundred years ago. But what can you tell us about the the building itself? Uh, its size, and also uh, how we get to the dating to King Hezekiah's time. Sure. Well, this was a really uh, impressive discovery that was made at this Arnona dig site. Uh, Really impressive, big administrative building uh, that had uh, a lot of uh, uh, seal stamps that were found in this building. Uh, it, it, It was quite an impressive structure made of very large ashlar stones, large worked stones uh so these aren't just stones that people big boulders that people find but they're actually most of the time would be carved bedrock i suppose right the uh really impressive carved stones so really uh, meticulously put together in quite a big administrative facility uh again as you say not far from the capital not far from uh the city of david uh central jerusalem and this this building evidently set within a uh, and within a large vineyard type area, lots of uh, grapevines and and olive trees. So this was kind of an standing out amongst this big agricultural re- region just on the edge of Jerusalem. Uh, big administrative facility, as we'll go into, based on the discoveries that they made from within. And the the building dates specifically. Uh, this this main part of administrative use dates to the late eighth century to seventh centuries BCE. So particularly uh, talking about biblical personalities, that's the reign of King Hezekiah and King Hezekiah's son Manasseh. 
and uh, like like other archaeological discoveries have have proven, these these kings did exist. Uh, they're mentioned on various inscriptions, and so now we start to to not just have evidence of these kings, but also a developing illustration and picture of quite a rigorous administration complex uh, from which they were able to to process taxes, tithes, uh, various administrative functions. Yeah, so if we talk about King Hezekiah, the Bible really does put him as one of the, perhaps the second most important king after after David in terms of how he really did turn around the nation. You'll remember from the history in your Bible that King Hezekiah came on the scene when the Assyrian Empire was large and also taking over everywhere in the Levant, all the way from the north up to in modern-day Syria, coming down through Lebanon, taking it, and then you had different Assyrian kings before Sennacherib, who's the one that is part of the Hezekiah story, taking the northern tribes of captivity, uh, northern tribes of Israel into captivity, leaving Judah uh, to remain. And then Sennacherib came down and he went along the coast and, and took the Philistine cities. And then he started to come inland towards Jerusalem, uh, took over Lachish before that, of course. And then all the cities were pretty much gone apart from Jerusalem. And that's where this last stand took place with King Hezekiah, as the Bible brings out. And no doubt, you're, if you're listening to this program for any amount of time, you know that this history, or we're well-versed in this history, because we had a uh, an archaeological exhibit back in 2018 and 2019, which showcased for the very first time the seal impressions of King Hezekiah himself, and also Isaiah. And this was housed in at our headquarters facilities in, in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, the archaeologist that that discovered these, Dr. Elot Mazar, has been excavating for decades in Jerusalem, and they were discovered in a layer from this exact period, really, uh, that the same period that this administrative building was in use. These seal impressions were found in that same layer in Jerusalem that, and again, holding the name of King Hezekiah, oh, sorry, it says, on the buller itself, or the seal impression says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, King Judah. You can't get any better than that as far as proving this individual. But something you bring out that you just said was that this was perhaps a location, an administrative location that was involved in the collection of taxes or tithes. Perhaps you can talk about the proof uh, of that. Sure. Well, uh, the, the one of the most dramatic things about this discovery was the just the sheer amount of seals uh, you mentioned the seals, personal seals of King Hezekiah and Isaiah. Well, the, there was a massive... So not the personal seals as in the animal? The, right, yeah, the seal stamps. Uh, you can imagine what uh, what we use today to stamp a letter, or at least maybe 100 years right. ago, you'd use a wax stamp and seal set. So it's the same idea back in the ancient times. You, you would have personal seal, uh, seal stamps with the name of of the individual and perhaps his title or the name of his father, or you'd have uh, administrative seals. And this is, uh, this is what they found at this site. They found a huge trove of about 120, just over 120 seals at this site. And most of them were LMLK seals. LMLK seals, so Lamelech, belonging to the king, uh, so these are uh, seal stamps that were impressed on the handles of specific storage jars. Uh, and, and these seal stamps would be inscribed with that Lamelech, 
attribution on the top and then an image of either a winged scarab or a winged sun. And then many of them will also have an inscription underneath belonging to a certain Judahite city. So one of four different Judahite cities. Uh, so, so these were, rather than being personal seal stamps, like belonging to Isaiah or belonging to Hezekiah, this was a general belonging to the king from this or that city, so to speak. Uh, so we have uh, uh, most of the seals found at this site were of this type stamped into these uh, pottery jars. And it shows that this must have been some kind of massive administrative collection area where these official uh, vessels, official perhaps taxes or tithes or some kind of uh, some kind of uh, donation were being sent to this facility and obviously many others around Israel. Now scientists don't know exactly what these Lamelech seals were for. There's been some speculation as to maybe they were preparations for the Assyrian siege, the Sennacherib. Uh, was coming to Jerusalem, and perhaps this was Hezekiah instituting some kind of uh, military preparation and rations and and uh, laying up store for that siege. Uh, but they're generally referred to as administrative seals. And here we've got this massive structure, well-built structure on the outskirts of Jerusalem. We've got over 120 seals, and most of those are of the Lamelech variety. So these these seals we we know of them um, in pretty much all excavations from this period in Judah. Uh, you can find them in in big excavation sites in the south and uh, on on the west as well from King Hezekiah's time. And so while there's no attribution saying that to the king means to King Hezekiah, we certainly have found in, in those same same layers and even the same if you look at the destruction layers of. Of cities that Sennacherib did destroy, they exist inside those destruction layers that were kill that were with cities that were destroyed during Hezekiah's time. So we do know from that evidence that it does relate to his uh, administration, and perhaps as you say, they were uh, the the way that that Hezekiah did prepare for the siege of Jerusalem, or or other cities, meaning that that foodstuffs would be. Um, brought in these vessels with to the king written on them and showing a sense of ownership that that, that they were the state's supplies to then be used as he see fit as he saw fit foot uh, as he saw fit and I think some people if you're if you're from Britain I guess or even from Australia maybe one of the Commonwealth countries we have on our on our envelopes often you'll have OHMS or on Her Majesty's service indicating that this is a document from the state. Um, and really looking at to the king really uh, from ancient times, it's very a very similar idea as that. I do also think it's interesting if you there are other studies that have come out about these lamellic inscriptions that they form about 10, 10 to about fifteen percent of of the vessels from this period of this type had this seal on them. That is what is estimated which would match up fairly nicely to a tithing system as well, something that was incorporated, as the Bible brings out, during Hezekiah's reign. People were using 10% of their income or 10% of their food to, to pay to the, to the king or to the, to the temple, and, and so perhaps that was part of it as well. Nevertheless, here we do find 
perhaps in, in greater abundance than other sites than I could think of, these two the king impressions, a hallmark of Hezekiah's rule. There was also some other seal impressions, some personal seal impressions with some names on them as well. Maybe you can talk about those. Okay, well, this makes up the smaller portion of the 120 seals, uh, 120 plus seals. And these were, again, variously stamped on jars, on vessel, uh, on vessel handles. And these carried the names of personal individuals. So you'll have, uh, essentially, generally, you'll have a, uh, within the seal impression, you'll have the name of the, the individual in question, and then below that you'll have the name of his father. So we've, we've got various names, uh, names also that are found in the Bible, like Meshulam and Elnathan, Elnathan, uh, El however you want to pronounce that, Zafan, uh, Shalem, Shebna. Uh, so various names that were found in, uh, relating to biblical names and also specifically relating to biblical names of this period used during the time of, uh, of Hezekiah and Manasseh. And we've got an additional article on the Watch Jerusalem uh, website about that, talking about how certain seals may not necessarily prove the exact individual and maybe these ones that have just been discovered, maybe they do, maybe they don't. We don't have enough genealogical uh, information on the seals to be able to say for certain that they're a biblical personality. But even besides that, even if it doesn't, even if you can't say for sure that this is the right one, even just the use of the name for the right period helps corroborate uh, the biblical account. Yeah, and I think I think that is in- incredibly interesting and not surprising. At the same time, these are people like us. Uh, if you've ever come up with baby names. Uh, you you look at the name for your child, and then you think you've come up with some pretty un- a unique name, perhaps, and then you you type it into some type of name finder online or babynames.com, and then you rec- you see that actually your name that you thought was quite unique is trending. <laughs> you are not original. That name is quite popular at the time at which you live. And the, in the biblical periods, it's exactly the same. Some names exist during David's time. You won't find them again. Uh, after that period. Some names only come into vogue during Hezekiah's time and continued thereafter. Some are there, there during the period of the judges, and then you don't find them. And you're saying that while we don't have, let's say, a name, a first name and a second name on these personal seals that have been found in this administrative building that match a first and last name of, of, of first name and a father's name of somebody in the Bible, the names themselves that are used match the period of right. Hezekiah. It, it just helps to add to that uh, the the auth- authenticity of the Bible continues to point to that, that this wasn't just the, the ramblings of some really late author who's making up these names, right? This... These the, the various sections of the Bible actually are quite specific to things that were happening at that time, and uh, this is somewhat of a side note. But we use uh, we use pottery to date certain uh, certain certain things, certain features, because pottery changes over time quite regularly. And so, if we've got a, uh, a compendium of that the pottery, we can quite easily associate pottery with certain levels. And it's the same with names really, because names really easily change over time. And you can see that really easily just today. I'm sure our listeners can probably think of several 
names, at least English names that are no longer in use that kind of sound a little odd or maybe there's a lot of, uh, you, you might have some older relatives with certain names that you would just never hear. So it's, in a way, it's, well, well it is the same in the Bible. You see the, that transition of names, and it is paralleled quite remarkably in archaeology. And so we've got an article on that. I believe it's called uh, Biblical Names Confirmed Through Archaeology, something to that effect. We also did a program on that. Uh, but you can type that into the search bar anyway on watchjerusalem.co.il and find more information on that. So before we end, before we let you go, uh, anything else discovered in this building three kilometers from the city of David uh, of note? Sure. Uh, Just a couple of things to quickly mention. Uh, Quite a few uh, pagan idol small finds were uh, were discovered in this building. Uh, As you say, the Bible notes King Hezekiah for being quite a, for having quite a righteous reign. But uh, as we've talked about, the site also significantly dates to the reign of Manasseh, and the Bible talks about him as one of the worst kings, the most pagan kings uh, at that time. So there's quite a bit of idolatry found, uh, sympathies toward pagan practices, obviously, of the people at that time. Uh, Moving on beyond that, you have uh, quite a huge pile of flint stones uh, that that, that covered the site, uh, and these and and this covering of flint stones dates to about the fall of Jerusalem, about the early sixth century BCE. Uh, so so essentially, what these archaeologists did was was move some of these uh, flint stones and and help expose this administration facility. But you you've still got this huge huge pile of flint stones uh, that originally stood some twenty feet high above the structure beneath and then spanned across, I believe it's roughly seven dunams, uh, about two acres, I believe it is. Uh, so scientists just don't know why that's the case, what, what these flintstones were doing there. Uh, there's a few archaeological sites around Jerusalem that have been similarly covered. Perhaps it was, uh, evidently it was something to do with that time around the Babylonian destruction. Uh, but but scientists aren't sure as to why that would be the case. Perhaps the Jews did it uh, as the Babylonians were sweeping in, or perhaps the Babylonians did it after the fact, uh, after conquering these sites. Uh, we don't yet know. And then the final point that I'll make about this discovery, it's just an interesting side point, is it was found, uh, as you say, quite close to the new U.S. embassy, which is kind of cool. You've got this huge... Uh, administration, ancient administration, governmental facility. It wasn't the capital. It wasn't the central hub, uh, the City of David hub, but it was uh, just this uh, slightly further out outpost, uh, governmental outpost. And here you've got almost a similar thing today. You've got this uh, nearby governmental outpost. I guess it's representing a different country, but it's just kind of interesting. You've got uh, these two outposts, new and old, right next to each other where this uh, discovery was made. 2,700 years apart and still a mystery as well to go forward with these interesting Flintstones covering the area. <laughs> uh, I, I have These other ones, just a side point, the other ones that you mentioned, are there massive piles of Flintstones that haven't been excavated underneath and uh, or have they been all excavated 
because people think there's they're burying a ha- burying a building of some sort. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Well, that would be a good indication of a place to dig. Say, mm-hmm. come dig me right now. Goodies underneath. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for filling us in on this. Again, this article is entitled "120 Seals Discovered in Excavation of Hezekiah and Manasseh Administration Center." This is available for you to read on watchjerusalem.co.il right now. Thanks, Chris, for coming on. Been a pleasure. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll get to this study from Tel Aviv University about your brain. Stay with us. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. We're going to cover a study that came out this week from Tel Aviv University. And it's really interesting. It's not something that we would normally cover on this program, but since it came out of Israel... And I think it it speaks to some important uh, things that come from the Bible as well, that we would cover it here. The study's entitled MRI Study, or at least this article of the study, MRI Study Reveals All Mammals, Including Humans, Share Equal Brain Connectivity. Now, I would like to say that I am not a a scientist uh, involved in the study of the the human brain too much, um, but... I think what these this study brings out, and in terms of other studies that have come out, let's say over the past 20 years, there is an increasing body of evidence that, that does show that the way that your brain functions is very similar to the way that other mammals function. And scientists, of course, aren't expecting to find this. They've never expected to find this. They have expected to find some type of physical enigma or difference with a human brain compared to an animal brain that evolved over time to account for the vast difference that exists in output of your brain, what you can do, how you can think, what you can produce, the feelings you have, the consciousness that you have in comparison to what animals clearly experience. And yet, as, as time goes on, there is less and less of a case to be made that the differences between animal and, and human output can be, can be attributed to physical processes or the, the physical matter of the brain and how it works. And this study, although there's probably going to be some that come out and discredit it, I'm sure, this study does draw attention to one of the the last remaining areas where scientists did think that there would be a difference between human brains and animal brains based on, again, the, the output of the human brain being so much more. This is how the, the uh, study begins, or at least the article based on the study. It says this, mankind's collective ego may be about to take a big hit. Humans have always reigned supreme on planet Earth when it comes to intelligence. Indeed, It's our intellect and capacity for critical thinking that primarily separates us from the rest of this planet's inhabitants. Yes, it does. Look at what you can do, and look what your dog can do. Look at what the birds can do. Look at what the chimps can do. Can they do what you can do? And obviously not. This is is a, a 
a scientific test that plays out daily in our lives that we hardly even think about it. I'll read that again. Indeed, our intellect and our intellect and capacity for critical thinking is that primary is what primarily separates us from the rest of the, the planet's inhabitants. That's why the findings of a new study are so surprising. Researchers from Tel Aviv University, after examining, examining and comparing brain connectivity across 130 different mammalian species, including humans, conclude that brain connectivity is equal among all mammals. These findings researched via MRI brain scans oppose long-standing beliefs and assumptions among medical and scientific professionals. And then it's going to quote the study, quote, We discovered that brain connectivity, namely the efficiency of information transfer through the neural network, that's what they mean by connectivity, how efficient information travels through the brain, does not depend on either the size or structure of any specific brain says Professor Yanivasov of the School of Neurobiology, Biochemistry, and Biophysics in a release, quote, In other words, the brains of all mammals, from tiny mouse, mice through humans to large bulls and dolphins, exhibit equal connectivity, and information travels with the same efficiency within them. Many scientists theorize or assume that the human brain features far more intricate levels of connectivity in comparison to other mammals, but the study's authors weren't so sure. So they went and they studied, they looked at the way that information travels uh, according to their different uh, uh, measurements. I'm not going to go into those details. I hardly understand them. Um, but here you have the Tel Aviv University coming out and saying that what happens in your brain as, well, as far as information transfer is very similar to, to animals. Towards the end of it, the article says this, quote, It must be said, however, that different brains use different strategies to preserve this equal measure of overall connectivity. Some exhibit strong interhemispherical connectivity and weaker connectivity within the hemisphere, while others display the opposite, he said. And then they added, We found that variations in connectivity compensation characterize not only different species, but also different individuals within the same species. In other words, the brains of some rats... Bats or humans exhibit higher interhemispheric inter connectivity at the expense of connectivity within the hemispheres and the other way around compared to the other animals of the same species. So I'm not going to go into that in too much detail. The study, I think it costs $8 to actually read the ins and outs of, the, of it itself. But it's, it's very interesting that this was one of the, one of the things that, that people assumed and scientists assumed was special about our brain and could be one of the things that accounts for the differences between animal output and and human output. The this I've got this other article, I'll leave a link for it in the show notes. It's entitled Animal Brains versus Human Brains. Let the Battle of the Brains Commence. And it goes through just looking at the physical processes of processes of our brains compared to animals. And talking about the things that we think that our brains would be good at, and yet there's many animals that do that physical process far better than we do. And obviously, there's you, you, some of these are pre pretty common sense. Um, smell, obviously, there are animals that can sense uh, smell far better than us, and it's not just to do the to do with the receptors in the nose, but how much of the brain uh, or what or, or parts of the brain that are actually dedicated to the understanding or let's say the interpretation of information based on smell navigation 
Of course, we have animals that do that far better than us without maps. They can get back to the same place. They can go through huge, uh, they can, if you look at talking about pigeons, they can detect, or they can detect changes to the Earth's magnetic field depending on location and to determine where they are and where different animals are going for their migrations. They've got basically an internal GPS system. You don't have that. <laughs> that would be handy, but we don't have that. Um, brain size as well. Uh, there's lots of other animals that have a larger brain size to us. Um, we have a rather large brain to body size, but there are still different animals that have a larger brain to body size as well. And they're not building skyscrapers. They're not writing poetry. The tree shrew, tree shrew that, high, that has a greater brain to body mass ratio. Other people said that that was the reason of why we are so smart. Our brains might not be bigger, but our brain to body ratio is, well, there are animals that beat us on that as well. Then there are a bunch of other things where animals uh, do beat us out in terms of the way that their brain can process, process stimuli. But then the article concludes this way, and I'll leave a link for this that you can read this yourself. It's, it's a pretty good explanation. It says, despite all the battles that we, we would lose to a fellow member of the animal kingdom, there are a whole host of cognitive abilities which are uniquely human that no other animal could contend with. And this is a no-brainer. If you're walking around looking at animals, you understand this to be the case. All the following behaviors, as well as many others, other imaginative concepts, have currently been demonstrated exclusively in humans. So it's saying that these are the things, just a point, point list of things that separate us from the animals in terms of our brain function. I just want to point out one of them that they, they get to towards the end. They say, here is some, just some of their bullet points. Advanced planning and decision-making, uniquely human. Humor, uniquely human, although some of us are more successful than others. At that, uh, appreciation of mortality, that is uniquely human. Adaption to unsuitable environments and a frozen land, you put on more clothes. That seems like a no-brainer, but it separates you from the animals. Morality, a set of laws that you might live your life by. Religion and worship, don't see animals doing that. Vulnerability to neuropsychiatric disease, which is very interesting as well. And this has to do with the consciousness that we, we have compared to animals. And then this, it says this, and this article was written back in 2017. This study just came out. Enhanced connections between neurons. That, uh, that is what they say. We have this article in 2017 that separates us from the animals. Well, you can look at all the other ones they mentioned on that list, and they're a product of, uh, we would say, more than a physical process, if you believe your Bible, more than what is going on in your brain. And then they have one there that is purely about matter, purely a physical process. Here's a difference, finally, that we have animals beat on that proves that what you can think and what you do is, at least in part, it's a product of a superior brain. And they say, enhanced connection between neurons. Well, you have to strike that one off that list because it was just proven to be false. We don't have enhanced connections between neurons. The connections between the neurons and the pathways in your brain are the same, of equal efficiency. 
to all the animals as all the other mammals as well. So quite interesting to, to discuss what the difference they thought some differences were that could account for different differences that we have compared to animals and even one of those, the one they cite, the one they cite in that 2017 article has been proven to be false. And so why, why for the, what's the difference? Why can you do all these amazing things, have appreciation for music, for architecture, for literature? You can produce creative, imaginative works yourself and the animals can't when the basic physical function of each of the of our brains compared to the animals is very similar at least compared to mammals why can't the world's greatest minds solve the mystery of that vast difference between a human brain and what a human can do through that brain and what an animal can do through its brain when they're largely similar this is a question of course that's baffled well i would say baffled people for a couple hundred years but if you go back 1600s, 1500s, plenty of people could look around at nature, conduct their own scientific experiment, and they would find base and they could account for this vast difference between a human brain and an animal brain. They could account for the vast difference in the output of those two brains because the Bible tells you that there is a spirit in man. That's what, that's what the Bible says. There is a spirit in man. It's mentioned in Job chapter 32 and verse 18. And that spirit is what allows man to have understanding, not just the input of information and then a pre, preordained uh, outcome of what you, how you would respond to that information. That's what animals have. We have the ability to take that information in understand it, comprehend it, and come up with a, an appropriate response that we deem is appropriate through the consciousness that we have through as we filter it through the morals or the laws that we base our lives upon. This is so, inf so infinitely different to the process that goes on in an animal brain and or an animal uh, in an animal brain. And this should be extremely obvious to people. And it was a long time ago when people just accepted that, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. So given the last 200 years of throwing God out of the picture and the increasing atheistic approach to science, um, then you couldn't count that there was anything non-physical. There's nothing non-physical. There's nothing spiritual. It's all material processes can, can account for all the differences we see inside nature. And so then they started to search for the, those physical, uh, those different processes. And they searched into the human brain. And they kept on looking. They kept on looking. The scientific method sought out a way to find a variation between our brain and the animal brain to account for uh, why everything was so different. And what I find is what I find is is amazing through this is as the scientific field becomes more sophisticated, as technology increases, as they now have the ability to have these MRS, MRI scans of animals and humans and how we eat different how we respond to the same stimulus and looking at the ways that our brains function 
as the study becomes even more microscopic and they can see the, the two brains of an animal and a human being up close, closer than they could, scientists are still unable to get to the point where they recognize that there must be something else. There must be another reason. How is it, again, that there is a vast difference between the output of mankind and the output of animals? How is it? Well, the Bible tells us that there is an obvious difference and that it comes from the spirit in man, as the Bible records. But if you're a scientist, you can't believe that. The whole scientific method is based on a material cause for for everything. There must be a material process. But again, as science becomes more and more specific, the more these scientists search, the more they study, the greater technology exists, the closer scientists can zoom in, look at the human brain and animal brain, they have found and discerned fewer and fewer and fewer material differences between the brain. There must be something non-physical. Now, the next question that would come up then, if you accept that, if you accept that there is something non-physical involving, involved in your brain, and involving the brain of an animal, the question then becomes, why? Why is the vast difference there? Why do you have a spiritual component to your brain? Science can't come up with an answer of how it's even possible that our brain can do things. You know the reason. You have a spirit in your brain. But then why do you have one? Religions today, they fail at producing an answer to the why. I want to help you out with the answer to that question. This is a book entitled, What Science Can't Discover About the Human Mind. They cannot discover it about the human mind because they are unable to recognize that there could be something other than a physical explanation for those great differences between your brain and the animal brain. But that only goes so far, recognizing that difference. I'm going to quote author Herbert W. Armstrong, um, and then I'm going to offer you this booklet for free. He says on page four of this book, and that pictures a transcendental, transcendental difference between animal brain and human mind. What causes that, that fast difference? There is virtually no difference in shape and construction between animal brain and human brain. The, elephants, the brains of elephants, whales, and dolphins are larger than human brain, and the chimp's brain is slightly smaller. Quantitatively, the human brain may be slightly superior, but not enough to remotely count for the difference in output. What then can, can account for the vast difference? Science cannot adequately answer. Some scientists in the field of brain research conclude that of necessity, there has to be some non-physical component in the brain that does not exist in an animal brain. There are some scientists that might be willing to say that, but most scientists will not admit the possibility of the existence of the non-physical. What other explanation is there? Actually, outside of the very slight degree of physical superiority of the human brain, science has no explanation due to unwillingness to concede even the possibility of the spiritual. And when, the, when man refuses to admit even the exi- very existence of his own maker, he shuts out of his mind vast oceans of basic true knowledge, fact, and understanding. When he substitutes fable For truth, he is of all men most ignorant, though he professes himself to be wise. Indeed, the scientific community, 
that has the greatest access to all this information and the brilliance to understand what they're finding on their studies can see that there's no difference between a human brain and an animal brain, and yet they are the ones that are least likely to come to accept that there must be something outside of matter working there. How is that even possible? That they have the most evidence for a spirit in man. And yet they are the ones most indignant against it and they can't possibly believe it. When you, looking around, you can come to that uh, discerning, come to the discernment of that quite easy. Mr. Armstrong continues, let me, let me make clear a few essential points about this spirit in man. It is a spirit essence, just as in and matter air is essence and so is water. The human spirit cannot see. The physical brain sees through the eyes. And that's what these scans show. The human spirit in a person cannot hear. The brain hears through the ears. The human spirit cannot think. The brain thinks, although the spirit imparts the power to think, whereas brute animals, animal brains without such spirit cannot accept, uh, cannot accept in the most elementary manner. Then it goes down, later on he writes this, the brute animal has a brain virtually identical to the human brain. Again, this is written 1978 before the study came out, 2020. And that's what Mr. Armstrong writes. The brute animal has a brain virtually identical to human brain and some even larger, but their brains cannot know, comprehend what man knows. Neither could man without the spirit of man, which is in him. In other words, this spirit imparts the power of intellect to the human brain. A brute animal also may see, hear, smell, taste, or feel what a man does and still be unable to utilize what enters his brain in thought or knowledge. Again, this this amazing spirit, this human spirit that you have does account for this vast difference in output of your brain compared to an animal, animal brain. And if that's the case, why did God create it in us? Why did God give us that ability to think, reason, process, make decisions, good decisions or bad decisions? Why did God do that? He certainly did that in hope that we would use that towards certain ends. And this book goes into all those details from the Bible to show you why God gave you a human spirit and why there is an existence as well of a second spirit that the Bible talks about throughout, the Holy Spirit, and how that Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand spiritual things. Just as an ignorant animal walks around, does what it does, and has the same, can have the, the smell, the taste, the touch, uh, the feel, but can't process those things like you can because you have a human spirit, then you, as a human being, can also read the Bible, can also look at what's happening in the world, and if there is spiritual understanding to be had, you are just as cut off from that spiritual understanding as the animal is from what you can do as a human being if you don't have that Holy Spirit, as the Bible brings out. The same difference exists between an animal without the human spirit and mankind and then a human being and a human being with the Holy Spirit. And that does open up all avenues of understanding. Now, this book, again, it's entitled What Science Can't Discover About the Human Mind. 
I think it's very uh, worthwhile for you to request it. It's by Herbert W. Armstrong. It's available to you for free. I'll leave a link in the show notes of today's program. If you are a, if you are somebody that looked at this study, and if you're in Israel, you probably did see it uh, on the news, and, and they're sitting back and the scientists are saying, hey, look at what you can do, look what I can do, and apparently, according to our brain scans, the animals should be able to do the same things too. But they can't because there's something non-physical there. And that is basic understanding, I think, to most of our audience. Um, but it does go further than that. The question is why God made us different and what God is hoping to give you in terms of his Holy Spirit so that you can actually understand things of a spiritual nature as well. Again, this is entitled What Science Can't Discover About the Human Mind. Uh, leave it in the show notes and you can click on that, request that wherever you are in the world and we will send it to you. That's all we're going to cover on today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again to Christopher Eames earlier for coming on and teaching us more about these latest discoveries in the biblical archaeological world. If you'd like to send some feedback to our program, please do write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Have a good week. Thank you.